It is, I think it's February, February 19th, 18th or 19th? Yeah, 19th, 19th of February. 19th of February, and the year is 2011. Uh, I am Paul Potts, and... I am Isaac Potts, his son. And we are driving down to Ann Arbor. And with us in the back, and he'll probably be pretty quiet the whole way, is my younger son, Sam, who is four. <clears throat> I think four, right? Yes, four. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to keep track. Uh, Sam is relatively quiet. Yes. Um, so... I tried to do an actual interview with Isaac for... Now you're going to complain? For basically for posterity purposes, for him to listen to in a few years. Uh, and see how things have changed. And see how things have changed. I did an interview with Veronica when she was four. Uh, yeah. Sam has not really been ready to interview. He has some sort of speech delay issues uh, to have a real chat with. But... Vera is six now, and she's overdue for another chat interview. Um, and you never have had a real proper chat recorded. No, not really, no. Although, I did talk to you one morning on the way to school, school yeah. but it was, you know, 7.15 a.m. on a... It was still dark. It yeah, was a, I wasn't that focused. And I wasn't. Either and it wasn't that uh, wasn't Long, that great a chat. It wasn't uh, really enough time to get. It's only a twenty minute, twenty five minute drive. Exactly. So now my nose is running like a faucet. Jeez. Okay. So just to bring everyone up to date, uh, I am still slightly ill. I don't know what's going on. <coughs> it just lingered. It seems to be getting better, but I'm at the. Uh, at the three-week mark, almost a month of this sort of chest congestion, uh, yeah. and I was was to a doctor and uh, didn't seem that bad. Maybe it's maybe it's going away, but damn, it's taken it's taken forever, and I felt like crap for weeks. And worse than feeling like crap is that I've been just spacing, spaced out. Like my brain hasn't been functioning very well, which is kind of makes it hard. If you know you have you have a virus, you have a, a low fever. Yeah. And you're not visibly coughing up blood or anything. You know you don't Bad. seem like you're about to die. Um, but you're just not 100. Well. percent You're you're just not well. You're just like you when you're trying to write something or study something, you're making just constant dumb mistakes. Like. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing programming, and I'm, this week, all week, I was just making stupid amateur mistakes, forgetting to initialize variables, you know, forgetting semicolons, like not getting my braces, my braces correct, and other developers are looking at my check-ins going, huh? And they're helping to correct for me, but I'm having to apologize constantly and just say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not able to concentrate very well. I'm, I'm still kind of sick. Yeah. Um, 
anyway, that anyway, that kind of sucks. But how has you had the same cold, but you pretty much recovered. You've been yeah. mostly yourself. I I tend to burn off sickness pretty quickly, but yeah. uh, I'm still a little bit stuffy. That's all that's like that all that is all that remains of cold. All that remains. So this winter has really pretty much kicked our asses hard. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's That's fair. accurate. Yeah. It's, uh, this is our first winter in our house in Saginaw, and the, the, um, our heating bills and, and basically the, the leaky nature of the home itself has meant that we're constantly cold. We didn't really because we were used to an apartment in Ann Arbor that was always too hot when we had been there for a good 10 years, yeah. we had basically eliminated all our real warm winter clothing, including things like long underwear and uh, jeans with uh, flannel lining and yeah. whatnot. I, I still wear underwear pretty regularly during the winter because I was uh, biking or using the bus to go to school. Yeah. So I was outside enough during the winter to need those. Uh, long johns, but I didn't have many sweaters that actually fit, or jeans with flannel. Yeah. So, so yeah, we had we had gotten rid of those things as they didn't fit or worn out, and not replaced them because our apartment was always too hot, being in the middle of the building, and just with heat we couldn't control very well. It was often we'd often have to crack windows and whatnot in the winter just to stay not get so dried out. But, yeah. But it's a total. This place is very different, where because of the heating costs, we kept our thermostat set to 55 or 60, and it would frequently be upstairs, it would be 50, downstairs it would be 50, 53 or something like that. Yeah. And just uh, constantly cold, and I'd wear like layers and wool socks and fingerless gloves and uh, like this wool cape. And, and just still be cold all the time. Exactly. I, I had a problem with my feet, where my my extremities were we're always, always cold. cold. Yeah. And it's not like we're no one's going to have hypothermia, but it's just being slightly cold around the clock. It's just uh, it's it's uncomfortable. It's chronically uncomfortable, and it's demoralizing. You know. Yes. <clears throat> so it makes it hard to think. Hard hard to. Uh, Thank hard to be happy. So, <coughs> so tell us what you're up to. What am I up to? Well, most of what I'm doing is just the daily routine, going to school, working on my Latin, my classes. Not much that is interesting is going on. Most of the things that I do that change from day to day are either Hapkido, where I do my martial arts and learn those things, or uh, surfing the web, and I've been getting more and more into actually working with computers, which is something that you were doing with me before, but I never really got into that. Yeah. I tried to expose you in kind of a totally half-assed way to uh, programming and scheme, like I wanted you to learn recursion and the basics of Lisp yeah. at a very young age, <laughs> which and, and you. Uh, and I tried to teach you a little Haskell and a little bit about how list comprehensions worked and some of these advanced concepts basically because I didn't want you to only develop one like so-called imperative paradigm of understanding how programming works yes um, which people get stuck in they, they take Java 
and they learn object yes. basic object-oriented programming, and a, a sort of a primitive implementation of it, and that's where they stay. Yeah, actually, um, our school is making that very mistake. They have an intro to computer programming class. And they're teaching what? And um, they're starting with this sort of drag-and-drop programming thing to get people who have never done anything involving programming before into the ideas. Yeah. It's called Alice. It's Alice. Made by... Oh, well, no, that's... Alice is a neat... That, that's... I think that comes, comes out of Carnegie Mellon. Yes, it does. Okay, so that's... There's some theoretical grounding behind there. There's some... Uh, yes, yes. So that's a, a good computer science school. So that that's... No, I, I actually wanted to try... I think that's related to the, to the Oz project, the Oz language. I'm not sure about Oz. I don't know about that. But I, did it come out of... It may have come out of ML. There, there's some... I don't remember. I don't know the, the background behind it, except for that it came from Carnegie Mellon. But there's some... So there's some pedagogy and some... Uh, and some... Um, good uh, theoretical computer science behind that. I, I'm yes. comfortable with that. So... But we're starting with that, and we're going to do that for the first half of the semester. The second half of the semester is going to be devoted to working with Java. Well, that's, that's th uh, people, uh, I don't know, I feel like kids should be, uh, they should just start with a with Scheme, or they should start with, uh, with uh, Haskell, or they should start with a formal language. Kids will, I, I feel like kids will either click with programming or they, they won't. won't. And if a kid clicks with basic but can't understand, can't ever understand uh, recursion and doesn't have a drive to understand functional decomposition or problem solving, doesn't have that love of, of problem solving, um, you know, doesn't, it's, they don't just, have it's that, just not it's really going to work. work for them. They're not going to be good at it. And we, the world doesn't need more uh, Java programmers. You know, it doesn't need more, uh, I learned how to use this framework and, and sort of implement methods in a, a web framework badly, or fill in the blanks programming without understanding what you're doing. The world yes. needs people with problem-solving skills and troubleshooting skills who know, who understand programming paradigms and who can uh, learn a new language, you know, as a matter of course. Yes, it's 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 kind of a mistake to uh, to study a language when you're learning programming. Yes. I don't I don't mean that you shouldn't study a language and learn a language. I mean you should study and learn lots of languages. Yes, and if you learn how to, so you can't say that you know how to program if you know Java and if you've used Java. Yes, you know I mean you could say. You can say I know how to program lowercase, you know. Yes. <laughs> like I know uh, program in the small. I can solve certain small, well-defined problems. Problems, yes. <clears throat> and uh, so, and you know, you can see that Mrs. Holland, my math teacher and teacher for intro computer programming, isn't entirely satisfied with the curriculum. For this reason, I was talking with her about the curriculum. And there's something that she mentioned that wasn't on the syllabus. She wanted. If the students actually got through all the stuff as quickly as she wanted them to, she was hoping that she could teach them some Python at the end of the year. Python would be a great, a great tool. It's a little formally muddled and confused yeah. as far as the paradigms it implements, but yes. um, but you can program with list comprehensions in Python, and you can program with with recursion, and you can even do 
currying and stuff like that, although it's, uh, it's not commonly done in that sport. I don't like boop in Python very much, object-oriented programming oh, yes. in Python, as it plays out in Python, but it, it's not terrible. It's, yes. uh, it's, I believe, uh, I believe it was made to be readable, that was the point that you were supposed to be able to, that's why all the... <laughs> it's a little wordy. It makes, uh, it makes, it makes solving hard problems very possible, but it makes solving easy problems a little wordy sometimes. Yes. But I, I don't hate Python. Uh, I, I respect Python. Uh, I've used Python a little bit. I actually, over the summer, this past summer, I did take a couple of free Python classes from my friend Ben's, a friend of a friend. Yeah. And I learned a little bit of stuff, and I was working on my friend Ben's computer. Yeah. Um, I was trying to actually implement the gamma function in Python, so I could plug in a number and have it spit out. I think, you know what, works. I just did one of my stupid uh, dad moves. <laughs> where are we? I... I have no idea where we are. <laughs> Hello! Wakey wakey! We're going to Ann Arbor, right? Yes. So why am I uh, in the Saginaw Township someplace far north of where we live? Uh, why am I in a cornfield? You know, they may think you're joking. No, I'm looking at a red stubble and, and some ranch houses that are out here. We're not in the middle of nowhere exactly, but we're on our way to so, I was supposed to be on the freeway, um, and we are so late, and I'm sorry about that. It's fine. Anyway, well, no, Python is, Python is, a, is a, a nearly a great language. It's a very expressive language. You can really learn to program with Python. Uh, you won't be learning low, very low-level uh, programming, which is a whole separate uh, discipline, really. Um, but uh, you can write efficient programs with Python, and you can write very expressive programs with Python. It's not my absolute favorite language, but it's not bad. So it's a good learning language. Yeah. Um, and I think the problem that she's having is that, you know, there's some special curriculum that they want her to use, and she knows what might, what, what might work well with her students. Yeah. But the, the system doesn't. The system does not. And the system wants her to do it the special way. It doesn't allow her to uh, to try and really challenge the students. Yes. And you know, some students are <coughs> challenged by Alice. And they're having difficulty with it, and they're actually growing with that. But yeah. some aren't. Right. And so there's not really very of those that aren't. There was a, a programming environment for developing multimedia uh, called Metropolis, or Metropolis. I don't know. Metropolis, however you say it, it's missing the, uh, the, the, the E. Um, it is sort of, was sort of a rational version of Flash. Oh. And um, of uh, Director. I guess, it, I guess it was Macromedia Director that led to Flash. And I've used Macromedia Director, and it's a very uh, useful environment. It works structurally and language-wise. It's just god-awful just horrible. The, like, everything's backwards and requires you to, to be as inefficient as possible. 
<clears throat> but um, Metropolis was a visual programming environment with, with, that was closer to the original vision of HyperCard. I don't, you yeah. probably don't know what HyperCard is. I've, I've heard of HyperCard before, but not more than that. HyperCard was, um, was an Apple product that started out as like a, a research project by Bill Atkinson, who was the guy that developed QuickDraw, which was the original uh, drawing primitives system for uh, for the Macintosh, circa 1984, the original Macintosh. And he also wrote Mac Paint, which at the time, I, I won't say it was the first painting program for computers, because that actually belongs to uh, like a much older program, um, which Donald Sutherland. It was, it was an older some. You know, there, there were some some predecessors to it. There, there were some tools like out of you know, Xerox Park kind of thing, and like the the birth of GUIs, the early days of, of computer graphics. There were yes. some tools like that. But um, <clears throat> Mac Paint was the first like um, uh, mass something that would run on, on basically a home computer that you could fit on your desk and that was that was popular you know and yes. actually it was bundled when you bought a an original 128k Macintosh Mac Paint was one of the tools that it came with I think if not it was available everyone bought it either it was bundled or everyone bought it yes uh, and um, trying to gotta understand this the original Mac had a, I think it was an 8 megahertz Motorola 68000, and uh, trying to manipulate the, uh, doing this graphics work uh, with a mouse and a processor at that speed in those days required that the code be very efficient. Yes. Otherwise, you just you would have clicked uh, the mouse to draw a dot or a line and just have to had to wait and wait. Yes. Um, and, but you could draw in real time with Mac Paint. Just doodle and, and everything would generally keep up with you. And like the to click to fill a region of the screen with color or a pattern or whatnot. This was all pretty pretty new. Uh, and, exactly. And it would you just click and bang it was there. And this is on what's would be considered now to be a very low, uh, very slow processor. Yeah. Um, so that it was quite an achievement. Well, anyway, Bill Atkinson designed HyperCard as basically an end-user programming system, in which uh, you you had a metaphor of a stack of cards of, of pages, and uh, you could drag and drop buttons on them. You could link buttons to pages. You could use them for navigation. Uh, you could. You could do drawing in layers. You could hide and show uh, materials. You had text and graphics. Yeah. One of the innovations that, that <coughs> HyperCard had was you could draw in white. So you could... Um, it seems like a simple thing, but you could have an image, and then you could have a, a white... Uh, like a, an invisible white image over top of it to hide and show it or move it. Yes. Or to, to basically to obscure what was underneath it by drawing in white instead of black. And that was slightly innovative and radical. But yeah. what, there was an underlying scripting language under HyperCard 
called HyperTalk, you, and you can program it at different levels. You could either do everything visually and still get quite a bit done, or if you wanted to write HyperTalk code to animate or react or make things uh, move in a way that was much more detailed, uh, you could delve into it and you could you could open up little text boxes and see, okay, what does this button do? And the uh, the language was very English-like, which could be both good and bad, um, because you start to have the impression that you ought to be able to write it in English, and then obviously that's not true. It has a formal syntax, yes. you know, which isn't English, but but you so you can't always get things easily written to, to work the way yes. you want when you start to when, you, when the language is too close to English, that can be a liability. But the model of it was very much like small talk, where everything is an object, and objects have properties and messages. You can pass messages to things, and uh, and it, it was a say revolutionary. It was it, it enabled basically HyperCard was the birth of um, courseware academic courseware and cheap and easy development of of um, learning materials and games you know yes. there were some hypercard games uh, there was a famous one called Inigo gets out which is uh, animation of a it's basically it all looks pretty crude now you know it, it's kind of like a animation of a cat and you click on the cat and click on different items on the screen and it, it would just navigate between static pictures pretty much and maybe play sound effects, I don't remember. But the uh, the art was like brush painted up with back paint kind of and it was a cute yeah. little kitty and you know it would react to you and it was charming. Exactly. And the fact that, that a non, someone who didn't understand uh, Motorola 68000 assembly language or C or Pascal could program that Yes, was the revolutionary part of it. And uh, this eventually, uh, this was a precursor to, I'm sure Microsoft would disagree, but it was a precursor to Visual Basic. Yes. <clears throat> which turned out to be an industry worth billions of dollars. End user programming. Uh, and it was a beautiful thing. Uh, and there were spin-offs. There was SuperCard, which is a color version with better able to manipulate multiple windows. I yeah. I got into programming. I got into C programming in particular. That um, wasn't the, the first stuff I wrote, but some of the first stuff I wrote in C uh, and wrote about and published articles about were HyperCard X commands, which basically were... Uh, Extensions, written little code plugins written in, in C. I wrote some that would enable you to generate uh, music yeah. from within HyperCard, uh, playing notes, uh, playing particular frequencies, and I used that to write a simulation of an audiometer. And um, back in college, we did courseware that. Um, taught limits and continuity in calculus. The topic of limits and continuity 
and would uh, would illustrate how a function would approach uh, a point at which it was discontinuous yes. uh, by animating multicolored lines as it would literally graph the function in real time. And you click on it, you'd, you'd be reading about it, and you'd click on this topic and it would go beep, 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 and draw in like uh, in red. Yes. And draw little holes to show where the function was discontinuous. So, and this, it was kind of crude, but I actually, I got paid to write it as a grader because they didn't have a budget for software design, but um, it was sort of a pet project of a, a calculus instructor, of a, of a faculty member at, uh, at my college. And it was, it was, that led to all kinds of things. That led to uh, getting some of my code published in Mac Tudor magazine and writing yeah. articles for Washington Apple Pie and, and, and basically getting into C programming and the uh, the Mac programming model um, pretty much led to much of what my career became yeah. as opposed to what I was really studying in school you know which was related but not directly yes so anyway I'm sorry I digressed so long but that's uh Programming, teaching programming and programming is one of my favorite topics and pet peeves at the same time. Yes. I, I, I can know what you mean. So you're, tell, us, tell us what you're studying. You're in your, in your junior year? Yes. And you're how old? <laughs> I know how old you are, but... Yes. I'm 16. Okay. I do not yet drive. Do not yet drive. We haven't really worked that out. Uh as to how we're going to teach you and, and in what context. Yes. You've had a, a couple lessons, I guess. With mom, but not no actual formal lessons. Right. <coughs> you're taking Latin? Yes, Latin 3. Taking Latin 3, and you're doing that through an online program? Yes. It's hard that way. <laughs> you're finding it challenging. There's a lot of studying without much context, without much yeah. lecture to it. Yeah. Bef um, before, in Latin 1 and 2, at Community High in Ann Arbor, uh, if you had a problem translating something, and we, we didn't do that much translating of passages. Mostly, we were learning grammar and the way things worked. In Latin 2, we did go through translating um, the story of Perseus. Nice. And that was cool. But we had help with that from a teacher, and we went through it step by step. In very small chunks. Now we have much less of that. We're getting into Latin poetry, which very, like in English, the grammar and the way words are used, all the, the mechanics of the language become very fluid. And so it's much harder to understand what's going on if you don't speak the language. Huh. Well... So, but your, your goal here eventually is you'll take the AP Latin exam. Uh, the, the National Latin exam, the yes. I'm sorry, National Latin exam. Yes. And you'll have basically college credit for uh, fluency in, in Latin. Yes. And, and, you, and may, you may, I don't know, does that mean you'll likely be able to skip having to take a foreign language for credit? And that's, very, that's entirely possible, I'm not sure. Um, the main reason that I want to take the National Latin exam, other than the fact that, you know, it's National Latin exam, it's validation of 
the stuff that I learned over the year. The reason I want to take it is because to colleges, um, if you have three solid years, or even two solid years of taking the National Latin exam, yeah. it's like having, you know, a nice big stamp saying good student on there. If you have... Yeah, I could see that. So, I mean, like a traditional scholar, instead of yes. some, you know, you didn't just, uh, you didn't just take your requirements, you clearly did something, uh, a little more, yes. a little more difficult, a little more traditional. Exactly. Yeah. What's even better is that, um, these past two years, when I took the national exam, national Latin exam, I got magna cum laude. Not maxima cum laude, but, you know, step from it. And that's, that's even better. So there's, what so you say, I, years of taking it? I mean years over high school. You mean like once a year there's a, a test to continue on to certify that you're up to speed? Yes. With your years of, okay. So yeah, cool. so there's a national Latin exam for Latin 1, 2, 3, and 4. I think there may be a Latin 5. Wow. Um, I may be wrong. No, I'm wrong. There's a Latin 4, but there are two of them. There's Latin 4 for poetry. And there's Latin four for prose. Interesting. Okay, so, so you're, uh, are you planning on going through four? I'm you? not sure. Okay. Um, I was thinking that, well, actually, the next year is a little fluid right now. As I am looking at this particular place known as Bard College at Simons Rock. Where, and I'm applying to it right now. If I get in, and I go, it means that I would start going to college your in senior, my senior year, senior year as opposed to having a senior year. I had, I applied uh, to the College of Worcester, which is where I went, and I was accepted uh, my junior year, and I was invited to come as an early admissions student. I would have had to finish up my high school requirements, which would have been basically um, social studies and whatever, you know, uh, yeah. like only two or three classes, just, just like English social studies, to, to meet my requirements to graduate in summer school after my, between my junior and senior year, and then I would have been able to go, I would have been able to skip a year of, of uh, high school, which to me would have been a godsend because uh, high school was... My senior year was was like just a waste of time. I mean, I, I did yeah. learn a little bit. I continued to take some classes, but it, I was just uh, I was in a brain dead zone. I was working yeah. at night at a grocery store and getting very little sleep and going into classes and sitting in study halls, just basically waiting out the clock. Yeah, and that's and a really terrible way to spend your senior year. It's a terrible way to spend a year of your life when you are at the, the time. Yeah, you know, ultimately it was, it was probably good for me for various reasons because I was really socially inept. Yeah. I was really uh, practically retarded, as I guess that's not a politically correct term, but my, my social skills were retarded. My, my social development, my ability to interact with adults and other students and whatnot was was that of a much uh, like a much younger kid, you know. Yes. Um, and this, I'm you know, per, I'm probably somewhere on the autism spectrum myself, and it's taken me years to uh, to really catch up and be able to have like a mature relationship, you know. 
Um, so, in a way, in a way it was good that I didn't go early. I probably, it probably would have been really hard on me personally. Not academically, but personally. Yes. Uh, but I'm not quite sure because that year I spent vegetating largely. I didn't, that didn't do anything to improve my social skills either. Uh, sure. I did have some friends and I did date a little bit, but I, I'm not sure that not sure that really made up for that year that was almost a wasted academic year. Because it's a time in your life when you were really uh, primed to be able to put a lot of your, your mind is very active, and you're really you're really prone. You really can learn quickly, really quickly, you know. And um, in later life, it's not so easy, you know. But, uh, but so, but I felt very uh, sad and frustrated by that, and, and still am because I think I could have gotten a year's leg up academically. But the reason that I couldn't go is because we didn't have my financial aid together, and my parents couldn't pay for a full ride, and so basically the reason was money. Which is, uh, now eventually I did wind up a scholarship student, and I got a, a lot of assistance, which pretty much allowed me to complete the program, you know, and my parents uh, would not have been able to fund me for a full, you know, to fully fund me as a student there. Yeah. Uh, and this was in 1984 or so, 1985 when I started at Worcester and tuition was uh, comprehensive unit fee tuition and room and board and everything at that time I believe was about 12 grand yeah. and now it's probably uh, it could be 40 grand now I, I don't know it was yeah. I, mean, I think by the time I graduated it was 16 or 17 or something and I knew it was a few years after that it was 20 and it's, yeah. it's been another you know it's been 20 years it's probably 40 grand which is um, <clears throat> the, I, I don't know for sure. It may be a little less than that, but um, the uh, that's that's not uh, terribly unusual for that's a private why. school. And the uh, the thing is, that's far above inflation. Yes. No one's salary has got three times more than three has grown by more than three hundred percent in the last twenty years. You know, salaries are largely flat, keeping pace with inflation, um, or, or even declining. So, the ability of, of basically middle-class people to send their, their kids to, uh, like, a four-year private college kind of situation is, has just imploded. Yeah. So, and, uh, you know, it's unfair to you for you to have the burden of, of having to worry so much about that part of the equation. It just doesn't make any sense that like, okay, we have a 16-year-old kid and we're either going to saddle you with, you know, over $100,000 in student loans and send you out into an economy that's barely, that's barely functional, it barely has a heartbeat, which you're not likely to be able to get a job to, to, uh, to get a, a good paying job. And to be on a path to have regular raises and, and work your way up to an yes. excellent job to pay that off, 
or you know we're gonna bankrupt your family. You know. Exactly. Actually, that's why I was looking at Williams College because even though it's a private college, their big thing is that so you fill out the FAFSA, you do all this you, you go find out what your family's financial need is, and they will pay 100% of whatever your financial need is. Yeah. So they're so basically so what we're can, this is you understand now why we've been telling you for years that if you're going to go to school, you have to do well in high school. Yes. You have to you have to look impressive to an admissions. Because yeah. otherwise, they're just not going to pay for it. Yeah. You're not going to win scholarships, and, and we're not going to pay for it. Exactly. So, uh, you know, we have a little bit of money in an educational fund, but, but it's only a little. It's only a few grand. And it has to be spread over. Well, well it's, it's, be, it's uh, actually, we're going to use that to pay for your mom's Montessori schooling so that she... Uh, <coughs> so that she um, can homeschool the kids yes. more effectively. But, and it, so that, let me figure that, you know, get that leverage one. But this is not, um, it's not fair to you, and it's not, it's a failure of our whole structure. Uh, that, they don't, I mean, I, I believe that the legitimate, wise, and, um, a society with its values and priorities in the right place educates people. Yes. Because if you become well-educated, educated to your full potential as you're interested in math, math and maybe math instruction, and maybe engineering, and maybe science, and, you know, or whatever, the potential, the, the income and the value you know, both both in terms of eventual taxes and just uh, what you contribute back to the community, back to the community, back to teaching people, back to creating economic value, back to creating social value, is incalculable. And to let to say that you know, no, this all this has to be self-funding off the bat. In other words, we, there's no investment. There's no community yes. investment in students. We're we're in libertarian view. There's no you know world. There's no such thing as this free lunch. I'm not going to pay for anyone else to go to school. I'm not going to pay for my community to be better. That's yeah. ridiculous. It's 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 the political manifestation of a of a two year old mentality. That there yes. that's, that it's just uh, it's virtue of selfishness. BS. And it's it's pernicious and it's. Um, we're the wealthiest country in the world, or we were at one point. Now people still think we are, not realizing that we've blown our wealth. And yeah. if we spent, <clears throat> if we spent a quarter of what we spent on our overseas military adventures, or a half of what we spent, or some fraction of it, everyone could go to college. Yeah. Everyone could get the education that I got, or better. At no cost. Actually, I was doing or, some or research no on world hunger. And apparently, if you combine the amount of food, the amount of money that Europeans and Americans spend on pet food, you can have clean water for everyone. <laughs> like, in a year, you have clean water for everyone on the planet for one year. The amount that Americans and Europeans spend on pet food. 
Yeah. Uh, it's um, clearly our priorities are broken, and we know this. But I just things were broken even when I went to school. I mean, it, it was I believe it was somewhat unfair to expect my family to pay the contribution that they did pay for yes. my college education. And no one went bankrupt, no one went without food. Um, but it did affect their ability to to save and to yes. have savings and to have retirement. Yeah. And that my parents were a two-income family. Both parents were working. Yes. But it was very stressful for them for a while. I mean, there was money, and they were able to contribute some. And by my senior year, they weren't contributing a lot. But it was it was a stretch. It was a, you yes. know, they were reaching hard. And, you know, we're going to put in what we can, but... Um, I don't, I'm not contributing to my, uh, to my retirement, or to our retirement, you know, to yes. my retirement adequately. And, in fact, just about no one in the middle class is. A lot of people have negative net worth, you know? Yeah. Our net worth is barely positive. I, we have a, we have a mortgage, and we have made a down payment on a house, and that's basically our only asset, and the rest of our assets are debts, you know? So we, we might have some small amount of equity, but as the housing market is still crashing, we really don't know where that's gonna bottom out. Our plan is to live in the house and pay the mortgage. But do we actually have assets? Do we have savings? Almost none. Yeah. <laughs> Next to nothing. Uh, I have some money in uh, 401k that, that it is not something I can, but, it, but it's a, it's a, it's a, Given that I'm in my 40s, it's a shockingly small amount. Yeah. So, and I, I say this not to, uh, I'm not unusual, you know, it's, we're not unusual. Um, and one of the things that, <clears throat> I can't say I've been good with money my whole life, I'm certainly better with it now. Yeah. But um, I was terrible with money for many years. Didn't earn that much for many years, but just terrible at managing what money I did earn. And there's that, but there's also uh, we spent quite a, a number of years getting on top of uh, ten grand in unexpected medical bills that I was hit with, I believe, in 2003. Yeah, uh, and that was only. Ten grand is a small amount for for an emergency room stay, which turned out to be pretty actually insignificant. It was, uh, yeah, that was the time that it came in right holes to you in the hospital. Right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. I, I I had a bad stress and gastric reflux, and it appeared at the time that I might be having a heart condition. I yes. spent the night in a in a care unit where my heart was monitored and I had some tests done and <clears throat> I had insurance but it was crappy insurance and bam 10 grand gone yeah, yeah. And, and we weren't expecting that and we did we thought that the various that the care I was getting was largely going to be covered and it 
wasn't. And this is, and we were told it, it was being covered. So it's just, <clears throat> this is also not uncommon. And it's only getting worse. Um, and so we don't, it we don't, we don't as a society pay for people's health care. I was working. I had health insurance. Uh, yeah. It was probably the best health insurance that my employer could afford, or at least felt he could afford at the time. You know? Yeah. Because it was a small business, we didn't have a large pool, a large number of people. Our, uh, our group was a small number of people. And so this is something else you're going to have to face and deal with, uh, you know, which is not, which is a disadvantage that um, when I started out, I mean, you'll have some kind of student coverage, student health coverage, you know, for a few years. But yes. when I started out, the situation was better, and it's gone to hell. I mean, no, it wasn't great. I was part of, I had an HMO, but I also was at a very low risk group at that time. You know, I, yes. I didn't have health problems, really. The only time I went to see my doctor was when, like, I fell off my bike and broke a rib, you know. Yeah. Injuries like that. I didn't have any... As people get older, they get boring diseases, you know, and they get expensive diseases. <clears throat> and some of them are, can be improved by lifestyle, but some not, you know. Some, some things are <coughs> genetic and, and can be eliminated and cost money and are tedious yes. and not glamorous. Yes. Uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, you know, things like that. Uh, they, are, they are susceptible to... It can be improved by lifestyle choices, but uh, so, so you're, you're, you're going to be growing, you know, moving into a world where health coverage, decent, even basic, basically humane health coverage is not a given, <clears throat> and it's hugely expensive, and even with insurance coverage, uh, which. Uh, even with insurance co coverage, any minor hiccup can be nearly a bankrupting experience or, or a bankrupting experience. Yeah. So it's a mess, man. It's, uh, I don't uh, want to sugarcoat it for you. you got to be very, you're going to have to be very cautious. Uh, yeah. And we can't... I, I don't want to jinx myself, but I haven't broken anything yet. Let's see if I can keep that up. Well, you know, if you just break a bone or something, you're not going to wind up 10 grand in debt, we hope, if you do a simple, you know, because your treatment shouldn't be that, you know, I broke my foot, I broke my hand, I broke my ribs, and that wasn't, it ultimately wasn't that expensive, even what was built to insurance. You know, I'd have a ca I'd have simple cast, a couple x-rays, and a couple follow-ups. Um, but if you wind up in an ER, yeah. <clears throat> you can be really screwed really quickly. Yes. So, and depending on what insurance you have and what doctor you go to, you can either, the same care may wind up costing, uh, there's a factor in, in these basic procedures and basic bits of care like x-rays and tests and whatnot and, and treatments. The, the difference can be 10 to 1 easily in how much you have to pay. Between if you go to the doctor and the ER? <clears throat> no, between uh, what kind of hospital you, you what kind of situation you're stuck in and what oh. kind of insurance you have. And it's 
complicated and hard to characterize. Like, um, I had insurance, and so the amount that was billed to me was uh, for a service was a negotiated rate, which might have maybe in some cases was 20% of what the rate would have been for an uninsured person. So that 10 grand, and sometimes more, sometimes 90, sometimes sometimes 10% of what an uninsured person would have been billed. Yeah. And that's shocking. So what that means is, you know, you do find yourself without insurance and you have the same thing happen to me that, you know, happened to you as happened to me. The same treatment in that ER for the night, you know, the same tests. They didn't even really do anything. They didn't do surgery on me or, you know, they, they did some tests. Yes. <clears throat> um, I had an IV. I had a monitor, you know. They didn't do anything really invasive. I had a... Yeah. Uh, that's nothing that same, should be expensive. Nothing that should be horribly expensive. The same uh, treatment, had I been completely uninsured, could have run upwards of $100,000. The price of a house. Yeah. I mean, contemplate that. Spending one night in, 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 a, in a hospital, not even having anything that drastically done, they didn't do surgery on me. They ran some tests. Uh, it would have cost as much as a house. Yeah. Our priorities are, and our and our costs are clearly deep broken. broken. Yeah. So I, I don't want to be you know, spend the whole time berating this subject, but just to just to try and make things clear. Uh, so. Latin and mathematics are really your uh, your wheelhouse, your forte. Yes. And you're taking calculus. Which calculus now? Uh, calc BC. Um, really? Like Aristotle-type calculus? Before, yes. Before, wow. Exactly. Um, I don't know why, but high schools insist upon not having calc 1 and 2. They have calc AB and BC. Where they sort of mash up the, they sort of mashed up the topics of Calc One and Calc Two, and then cut it in half in a different way. Okay, so, if so, you take, it's, so it's like you're taking three sections of calculus in two years. Yes. Okay. Well, it's messed up. I'm not sure why they do it that way. Well, whatever. But they There's do it. Always some, some scheme. But the, the idea is that once you finish Calc BC, you're at the same level as a college student who finished Calc Two. Not well. You learned the same topics as Calc 2 class. It didn't seem like there was uh, any universality when I was in college in the way that Calculus 1 and Calculus 2 were, were broken down and were covered. There, there was like a, a vague standard as to which chapters of Swolkowski, the, yes. the Swolkowski textbook that you covered. Yes. But the depth in which you covered them varied enormously. Yes. So like... Um, Calculus in uh, at Worcester was essentially taught as if even even if you weren't a math major, it was taught as if you were, and so you had to yeah. prove everything. Yes, on exams, and that was uh, that was difficult. It, it was. Yeah, um, and I'm actually I'm kind of annoyed that my teacher before 
Uh, I'm taking calc the second part of calc for a second time because I did not like the grade that I got before, so I'm taking it again. Yeah. But my teacher before <coughs> calc two, calc one was just fine. He taught everything relatively well. We built everything from the ground up, and that and that worked well. But he did it in a way that made sense to both my engineers and math majors. So he got a nice middle ground. For calc two, he painted entirely to engineers. So I, as a ma as a person who's go who wants to go into math specifically. I'm missing a whole lot of stuff. You're missing some of the proofs, proofs and, the, and, the, and the theoretical background he was teaching in more as a practical subject. Yes. And so, you know, we were talking at the end of the year, and he made reference to the um, epsilon delta proof. Right, right. And I said, I don't know what the epsilon delta proof is. What, you don't know the epsilon delta proof? I'm telling him, who would have taught it to me? You're my calculus teacher. Who else would have taught it? Yeah, who else would have taught this to me? Right. Well, yeah, because yeah. in my... Because it, it doesn't say anything about it in my book. I've been reading my book. It doesn't say anything about it. And you haven't taught it to me. We did learn that kind of proof. Uh, I only made it through California College. And I, that's embarrassing to me. I was not a very good math student. I was a terrible math student. I came out of high school really poorly prepared. I thought that I had taken a lot of algebra. I took everything they offered in terms of algebra, and I did pretty well in it. But it was weak. The material was was weak, and I was missing a lot of techniques. And I was yeah. missing I was missing basically everything you'd consider to be mastery of radicals and roots, and, and um, you know, I mean, I could I could uh, solve quadratic equations, binomials, and factor basic things like that, but yeah. everything as far as dealing with complex uh, forms, radicals, and, and roots, and fractional powers, and all that, I did not learn. I, and I, I was really unprepared to yeah. go into. So I had to take uh, a class called Remedial Algebra, which basically was a great class. I mean, it was very practical, just drills, exercises, 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 and here's how, you know, and, and how the techniques work. And then I had to take a, uh, basically an elementary functions class, which was trig, really. Trig and yeah. logs and, and uh, how to work with functions. Yes. Uh, all the, the trig identities and how to solve and do stuff with them. Yeah. Manipulate them. But had I had better high school preparation, I would have been able to go into Calc. And had I had much better high school preparation, I would have been able to go into Calc 2 or Calc 3. Yes. Instead of barely making it through Calc 1. But I, I was not prepared well. And the frustrating thing being that I really loved math. Yeah. So It's, yeah, it's annoying because I, I do meet, student, meet other students who like math, but aren't but, and not necessarily bad at it, but aren't being taught it well. So, there, there are a couple factors. I mean, love math is in love the, the theory and love uh, the concepts and love to think about math. I mean, I used to spend time thinking about the continuum hypothesis and thinking about orders of infinity and, and solving. I would, you know, for number of years ago, I tried to teach myself linear algebra and whatnot from various books for fun. That's how much yes. I love it. Uh, but my formal education in math did not prepare me well. I also was a very undisciplined student. 
And I'm still undisciplined in many ways and still suffer sometimes from being so undisciplined with my time. Like, and this, this affected me not just in math. Uh, for example, I, I took uh, two uh, semesters of Spanish and I didn't do the work. And so I would still squeak by by cramming, you know. Yeah. But because I didn't do the work with the tapes and the headphones, I couldn't and could cram and could get by and do well enough, not just to pass, but to get, let's say, B grades, you know. Yeah. Uh, I did. And I, I didn't quite understand to what extent I was shortchanging myself. Yeah. You know, to just, to just get by. And in most subjects, I that was okay as far as grades went. But when it came to calculus, which was taught at a pretty tough level, uh, with a pretty high emphasis on proof and whatnot, and you couldn't just science, cram, you couldn't just memorize. You had to know what was going on. I had to be doing. I should have been doing at least an hour or two of of work on in my math classes per day, at least, as a minimum. Or maybe more like three. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't. And, and so, I just, I was not prepared to, to take um, linear algebra, abstract algebra, discrete, and um, uh, Whatever, one or two other classes that would have been uh, eventually theory of computation. So calc one, two, and possibly three, and, and uh, you know, yeah. the things that went along with that. What would have constituted introduction uh, uh, analysis? You know, yes. Uh, and um, the beginnings of, of topology and whatnot. You know, I was just not prepared, uh, and my habits were. I was not disciplined enough to continue down that track, and it was a real, yeah. it was a real waste. I'm not sure I ever would have been good enough to, uh, at that, just, just good enough at it in general. I'm just not sure my, yeah. my basic talent was in that direction. But, um, to get, but to get through a major, to get through those classes, I don't think you had to be that talented. You didn't have to be a Richard Feynman or a Stephen Wolfram. You just had to be willing to slog through it, you know? Yes. And I wasn't, and, and so I was not able to, to finish a computer science major. Yeah. I don't think that's really hurt me as far as that much as far as doing what I like to do, but it did certainly hurt me as far as I didn't have really an option to go on in computer science uh, and become a... You know, get a eventually get a PhD or a master's in computer science without uh, having done like I would have had to do a lot of remedial work in math. Yeah, yeah. Not programming. Math. Math. So I've always been heavy on the programming side and, and weak on the math side. And for, yeah, I don't think I don't think I'm going to be doing any. I don't think I'm going to be getting a major in computer science. But you know, I like. I, I like working with that sort of thing and just recently I want I want to know how it works but here's the what's thing going on. if, if you, you know. are really good at math and really skilled at it and, and blow through 
linear algebra, abstract algebra, and all that. Take a, take the programming classes uh, and and learn the the paradigms of programming and whatnot. You can you can wind up getting a, a degree in computer science almost by accident. You know. Yes. Like um, I wrote a an assembler. I had this huge programming, a large programming projects. Yeah. Uh, for an undergraduate, they were large. You know. They were difficult. They were challenging, and they'd still be somewhat challenging to me today, twenty years later. Not as challenging, but um, but they take time, you know. And, and yeah. uh, that's the main thing. Programming classes are very time-consuming. <clears throat> some for some people less than others. Uh, I had friends who were a little more skilled at, at moving in a straight line from a concept to implementation, where I tended to do. A lot of revision and a lot of yeah. I was graphs. doing that with the couple of free Python classes that I have in the summer. Yeah. I was trying. I started with the Fibonacci sequence, and where you know, I'd plug in five and it'd give you the fifth Fibonacci number. Right. And so I was doing it, and I was doing, it, and I was getting something wrong over and over again, where it gets something weird, where it'd give me like every other Fibonacci number or something strange. Right. And it wouldn't get it every over and over <laughs> again. And suddenly I realized that it was so easy. I just. And I did it, you know, it was just a couple of lines. It was very simple. I was just making it much too hard the entire time. There's an awful and lot so, of that in programming. Yeah. Where the, 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 the true solution, they call it elegant. That term gets so overused. But like um, a recursive implementation of an algorithm can be what's called elegant. Once you get it right, you're like, oh, wow, I can't believe it's that simple. And you look at it and you figure out the, the, the first case and determination case, and you prove that um, you know in each in each uh, recursion that you get closer to a termination case, and you're done. And it can be very short. Yeah. Which is why oftentimes seeing algorithms implemented in, in Java or C or something like that can be so frustrating yes. because the expression, the pure expression of the algorithm, can be so simple and so elegant. So, so for uh, for your phys ed requirement, you're taking Hapkido. Yes. And I don't. Do you have the paperwork done, the documentation, whatever done that you? I'm not to? exactly sure. I think that for second, for first semester, mom did work for that. I'll have to talk to her about it. I'm pretty sure mom will turn in the paperwork to get that registered in phys ed class. But finding out that apparently there are some things like where I'm supposed to have a, a sport, a club, and some form of community service. I'm not sure what's going on there. For your for your college admissions? No, um, for school. Oh, for your school. Exactly. Well, they and require that stuff because they know that that stuff looks really good to admissions offices. Yes. And in fact, I don't, if not a requirement, it certainly is a, a bonus. Yes. You know, they're looking for citizens, for junior citizens, you know? Yes. And the thing is, you know, I was working at Michigan Peaceworks and doing work there very often into my from seventh grade into my sophomore year. Right. And, you know, it started to peter off my sophomore year because I really, I overtaxed, I overworked myself. I, I overbooked myself yes. during my sophomore year. And I did it hard. So I, it started to peter off during my sophomore year. But I had that, and the only reason I'm not doing it now is because Michigan Peaceworks is an hour and a half away. I need to find something new to replace that here in Saginaw. 
Yeah, and, and we haven't quite found that. Although your mom is working as hard as she can in her spare time, such as it is, on this group, the Saginaw Breakfast Club, and yes. the various initiatives they're doing. And she does this, this is just her, she's unable to not do this kind of thing. You know, she's, yes. she's a community activist and has been since her own high school days. And yeah. I'm not exactly that, you know, I like to be, a, I like to teach and I like to work with people and do creative things and all that, but I'm not a, I, you know, I like to march and protest, but I'm not an organizer. Yes. And I'm not, I'm not really an organizer either, but I do, um, the way that I change the way things are in the school or in the community is by changing the people in the community that I connect with. So my friends at school, probably the beginning of the, uh, things are changing for them because I'm around them and they, they act differently because the conversations that we have, you know when they start talking about how that's so gay, I say, that's not nice. That's not, that's not a, that's an appropriate use of language. Yeah, it's, it's not offensive. Appro- it's offensive. And I'm like, oh, right, yeah. And they're all embarrassed, and they don't do it anymore around me. And the more time I spend with them, the less I end up doing it. So that's a small example, but yeah, you're, you're serving yep. as, you're attempting to serve as a role model to make the dialogue uh, better. Better. Uh, and I, I guess I, and the thing is, when people start talking about, you know, they start they start talking about the problems that they're having with the government, the way they think things are working, and they don't like it. And I'm talk and I talk to them about how how they can how they can make that happen, how they can go work with these these people and do those things instead of and, just complaining. Instead of, instead of just complaining, and we talk about, you know, well, what do we actually want here? And what decision actually makes sense? There's a phrase your mom uses, uh, an idea your mom uses, which I think is. Let me let me look at and see how much time we've got on it. Oh, we're doing okay. We got a full battery, but we are. We don't have. I think we've only got probably a half hour of audio left. Okay. Um, But uh, at least on the internal memory, so I have to stop and change cards. Uh, But. your mom has a phrase, which is, uh, people are really good at identifying the leverage points in a system. For example, uh, in, a, in a city council type environment, the leverage points are basically what projects you fund, you know? Yes. I'm being passed on the right at 80 miles an hour, and I really don't like that. This driver is a dick. Um, you should never don't pass people on the right on the freeway it's disconcerting uh, unless you absolutely are stuck and you know it's, it's just keep in mind it's, it's, it's an unusual and distressing thing to do to the other drivers they're not expecting you to pass on the right okay. um, if you need to, if you want to be going faster you get over to the left and then you get back into um the lane you should be in, and you don't you don't sit in the left lane, and you don't block people who are trying to pass in the left lane, and you don't pass on the right. Okay. But um, I remember that. I don't remember that. <laughs> but uh, people are good at finding the leverage points in the system, uh, and then pushing on that lever 
as hard as they can in the wrong direction. Yes. So they see, for example, this. We see uh, that taxes are a problem, and the deficit is a problem, and the war is a problem, and these, you know, financial issues are problems. That that people are just a basic example. That that people's uh, financial security is a problem. Yeah. So the solution is to take Social Security, which is an enormously popular and successful program that is largely self-funding and is not in deep crisis, and and screw with it and break it. In other words, there's a problem in this in this area. There's a problem with our, our Social Security in the, the general sense, not the specific Social Security program. So the solution is to take the program that's designed to fix this and break it. <laughs> and this is like <coughs> the right-wing hatred of government. They want to get into government. They want to govern. They want to get in, into those positions of power, but they suck at governing. And, and everything they, they touch when they try and govern breaks. And be, I, I've, I've and, said this for a while. And becomes bankrupt. And, and that, that, well, actually, I agree with Douglas Adams on this particular thing, that anybody who has the ambition and the drive to get into a position of power in politics is, because of that, entirely unfit un, to be in office. Unfit to be in office. And I think he suggested that... Uh, in, in a wise culture, when people were elected, they would just be uh, imprisoned uh, preemptively, you know? Yes. We wouldn't even bother to ask, what crime have they committed? Because, is that even a question? Because they didn't commit a crime? How did they, yeah, well, it, I mean, they certainly are going to, you know, as <clears throat> their next breath, you know? Anyway. But so that that but that metaphor about leverage points and pushing on them in the wrong way, uh, yeah. I think is very instructive and, and, and very apt. For example, we know there's a problem with our tax funding of our system. So, so instead of so saying to, that we should you know change the what we spend the taxes on, they say let's have less of them. Let's cut the taxes and increase spending. And in specific, let's cut the taxes on the people with the ability to pay the taxes. Because <laughs> that makes sense. Yes. Uh, leverage point. Lever pushed in the wrong direction. Alright. I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to stop the uh, recording in a few minutes. So, what are you... Uh, you're going to be listening to this in 10 years or 20 years, maybe. Assuming I don't have, you know, terrible hard drive crashes and lose my server space or whatever. Um, yeah. What do you want to uh, say as far as what things are you interested in? You've, you've conveyed some of that, and I, I think you've conveyed some of it pretty well. But how's it going for you? I mean, we had a... a we had a traumatic and, and difficult move after your sophomore year of high school. We moved to a new city, and not just any city, but a city in a state of near collapse. Yes. And we knew that this would be difficult, but we also knew that if we didn't move, if we didn't do it then, 
it would be more difficult. You know, our yeah. situation would be because we were stuck in a small apartment, unable to afford a, a anything bigger uh, where we were, and just just losing it. You know, rapidly running out of space for kids. Uh, but why don't you tell me a little bit about how this has been for you and what your challenges and, and feelings have been about this last this last year? Because I think you're going to remember this last year as the big year of, of transition, you know? Yes. Um, really, the big thing for me was that before in Ann Arbor, this actually happened when I moved from uh, AALC to homeschooling as well, I didn't, I didn't see people. And I'm definitely an extroverted person that I need people to feel right. I need to talk to people and spend time with people in order to feel at peace, right? Yes. So, whenever, when I switched from homeschooling <laughs> to homeschooling, suddenly, I didn't have this daily flood of, so, of, a social, of, of socializing. I didn't have that anymore. It suddenly was gone. I didn't know how to deal with that. Now, but the problem is different. I moved from a flood of people in Ann Arbor, people that I knew there, suddenly now I'm with all these other people from Midland and Saginaw and Bay City and I don't know them and their motivations and how they think nearly as well. And everything's very confusing for me. The culture's a little different as far yeah. as Ann Arbor's a, you know, I mock it as being only fake liberal and that's true, but at least it's fake liberal. At least, yeah. it, at least it has a surface veneer of, of multiculturalism and liberalism, whereas and at least you can use that to guilt them into actually being liberal. <laughs> to be, be behaving, behaving in a in, in a tolerant way. Yes. Uh, so, what's your experience? I mean, you're at a small school, and it should be uh, pretty much the. Uh, this may be sad, but it should be pretty much the cream of the crop as far as quality of of students. I should have uh, gotten yes. there in this area. So what's your experience with that? What are the what are your peers like? I don't want you to name names cuz I won't they, name they, names. They might, they might hear things. Hear this and things could get back to you. But what's that? What's the the what are the modern uh, what are your modern, you know, peers, your contemporary peers, what are they like? And how does that strike you? Hmm. I I think it's important to say that when many times when I talk to students just in general, people my age, not just people at this at my school, but in general, they don't exactly know where they're going. They have a general idea that they may want to go to college and do something, but they don't know what college or what they want to do or anything. They don't they don't have a plan. Students at Midland Academy almost always have a plan. So these are, are that makes them almost by definition middle class kids. Yes. Or upper middle class, even. Yeah. I met poor people at Community High. I don't meet poor people at Midland Academy. Which is interesting because it's not a private school. No, it's not. But it is in the middle of nowhere. And that actually does separate them from people who. They're not can't urban. Afford, they're, they're not urban. They're they live people. in the, the townships or they live. Uh, and the thing is, they're far away from everybody. So anyone who wants to go there has to be able to spend gas every day to get there. 
Right. They have to have a family that that can uh, can get them there, which means either a, a stay-at-home mom or a, a, a father who's in a situation like mine to work from home. Probably doesn't mean a, t- a double-income family where both parents have early morning jobs. Uh, it would be that might be happening, but it would make it more challenging. Yeah, you see a lot. Um, actually, it's got to be at least right a there, two-car family. What happens at Midland Academy very often is that you have students whose fathers work outside of the school, have a have a job, and their mothers are technically speaking stay-at-home moms who bring who bring or don't bring their children with them, depending on whether or not they have small kids, and they do volunteer work at the school. Oh, so, right. like, uh, I have a friend, his mom works at, his mom does volunteer work at the school, his dad works somewhere outside of the school, his mom drives him to the school, his mom stays there the entire day and drives him back home. She, she volunteers at the school all day. Yes. That's interesting. See, this and, is... And all her kids go to school then. Right. So she's with his kids too. But, it, so it's, uh, but it, when I say it's not a private school, I mean that it's publicly funded, so we don't yes. have to pay anything to unusual except for things like uh, field trips and college tours and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's publicly funded. Which, so that's, but it's interesting that, because there's an inherent... Um, elitism, there's an inherent separation because without public transportation, without busing, uh, kids, say black kids who live on the other side of Saginaw, from families who don't have as many options as we do, don't have two cars, don't have as much time, you know, don't have as many resources, they're sort of uh, unlikely to, to be able to to uh, attend, even if they, they're even if they were qualified students. Yes. Yeah, which is it's such a such a shame, and we, we have this uh, I guess you call it liberal guilt. You know, we have this struggle where on the one hand we want to support our community, and we want to use the public schools in order to try and improve the public schools. You know, raise their standards rather than than and contribute to them. Um, which also means funding them. I mean, e- even just by sending a student to the public schools, you're helping fund them because you're providing another student for the state and the federal government to count and determine how much funding yes. they get. Right. So, uh, but on the other hand, if the school is really toxic and really dysfunctional, uh, it may not be safe to send. Your we're students not willing to sacrifice to actually sacrifice either your safety or any hope of, of a decent education. For those, for those goals. Yes. Which makes it really, it's a rock and a hard place situation, because it's the parents with options who can make that calculus. You know. Yeah. And leaving the parents without options, as as with the leftovers, you know, with the scraps, yeah. with the. This is the school we've got, you know, and this the, the one where the bus will come and take the kids there and warehouse them, you know, even if... You know, I should say, and even for us, we have our options, There's it gets strange later because, you know, I'm looking at the Saginaw Foundation, Scholarship Foundation, where we've been looking at all those scholarships, and I find scholarship after scholarship after scholarship 
where I'm qualified for everything except you don't go to a Saginaw public school. Right, right, right. So well, that's they're, the only they're trying, that's, a, that's an initiative to try and compensate for the fact, for the fact that the known, some of the known problems with the Saginaw public schools. Yes. By giving kids a little extra advantage yeah. as they leave them. Which is, how stupid is that? You know, I mean, that you yeah. can't... This, the situation with the school is so hopeless that the best you can do is try and help kids get out of them. Yeah. And, and you know that they're coming out with a disadvantage. But, I mean, how much better would it be to actually improve the school? All right, we're going to get gas, and so I, I'm going to stop for now. My throat is getting a little raw. Anyway, maybe I'll get a... But uh, it's been a great chat. Yeah. Uh, really, I, I think this will all be like really usable as a podcast. Uh, did I do better than last time? Much better than last time. And, and uh, I've been sp- speaking too much. I have this tendency to do all the talking. But, um, but I'm, I'm really grateful for the chance to chat. And I think you will listen to this. And I think other people will listen to this. And first of all, they'll be uh, really impressed with what kind of a kid you are. Oh, as a 16-year, and I'm impressed. I'm very, very proud of you. Uh, your, your degree of educational attainment and your morals, your morality, and your, your sense of, of society and sense of other people is very impressive yeah. for your age. It's very impressive for any age. But um, we'll continue on. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll end it here. Uh, the second, a later discussion may not. We may not wind up getting any energy back together. Yeah, that's true. But um, I need some water. Yeah. But I appreciate the chat, so thanks, Isaac.